teaching text is from Acts 9, 1-19a. Saul, a zealous Pharisee, has made a name for himself by finding and arresting Christians in Jerusalem. As he travels to Damascus to continue his persecution there, he is stopped by his tracks, in his tracks by a vision. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing, threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was going along and approaching Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city. You will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and his eyes were open. He could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days he was out of sight and neither ate or drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias. Come in and lay his hands on, and lay his hands on him, so that he may regain the sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from chief priests to go bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name for the Gentiles and kings and people before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you in your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days he was with his disciples in Damascus. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, break into our lives and give us new life in you. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed, but we are living in an age of superhero movies. Every single year, there are several multi-million dollar superhero movies, uh, not to mention spin-offs on television and other media. And of course, these movies run the gamut in quality. Uh, Some are good, some are not so good. But there's always one type of superhero movie that I always find interesting, and that's the origin story. Going back and finding out what makes someone tick, why they are the way they are, what started them down their path of fighting crime or aliens or whatever it is that they fight, uh, there is something, I think, compelling about that, something human about that. 
Well, our story today is an origin story, an origin story for one of the superheroes, you could say, of the Christian church, the Apostle Paul, who is called uh, throughout our reading today by his Hebrew name, Saul. Paul slash Saul is one of the most important leaders of the early church. He travels uh, extensively throughout the eastern Mediterranean, teaching and planting churches, and he wrote, either directly or through his students, nearly half of the books in the New Testament. But before we get to that, let me bring us up to date, because just last week we were on Easter Sunday. So from where we were last week... Uh, In the years immediately following the resurrection of Jesus, uh, the preaching and teaching of those early believers, it's led many to faith in Jesus crucified and resurrected. Though some of these believers in Jesus are members of Greek-speaking Jewish communities throughout the Roman Empire, at this point, maybe five years after the resurrection of Jesus, the center of the church is especially Jerusalem. At this point, the majority of believers in Jesus are Jewish, and they continue to meet in their synagogues and as well as to pray in the temple, in addition to meeting in their homes for study and prayer. And as they continue to grow in number and as the new believers begin to contribute more and more to the common welfare of the church, there begins to be a need for more formal organization than what has existed so far. And so the 11 disciples of Jesus, plus Matthias, Judas's replacement, now called apostles of Jesus, which means those who are sent, they appoint seven deacons, seven ministers, seven servants to oversee the distribution of wealth, uh, funds, that is, and food in caring for the poor of the church, especially uh, widows who have no family. At the same time this is happening, the Jewish temple leaders are beginning to take a harder stance against these Jews in their synagogues who believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And they are beginning to harass and arrest the apostles and other believers. This comes to a head uh, just a couple chapters before our reading in Acts, uh, when Stephen, who is one of those first deacons appointed, is stoned to death on the false charge of blasphemy, and he becomes the first martyr of the Christian church. And that is where we first meet Saul. So let me just read for you that passage uh, at the end of Acts chapter 7. Then they dragged Stephen out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he died. And Saul approved of their killing him. That day, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison." Now, I want to be clear here about what's happening. This isn't an interreligious conflict. This isn't simply the members of one religion trying to eliminate the members of another religion. Rather, this is a conflict at this point entirely within Judaism. 
On the one hand, there are Jews in Jerusalem active in their synagogues who believe in Jesus, that he was the promised Messiah and that God raised him from the dead in order to bring forgiveness of sins to all who believe. On the other hand, there are Jews in Jerusalem active in their synagogues who believe that the Messiah has yet to come and that Jesus was just one more in a long line of revolutionary pretenders who blasphemed against God and put the whole city of Jerusalem at risk of Roman reprisal. From this viewpoint of Saul and the Pharise- of Saul the Pharisee and the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the synagogues have been infiltrated by a dangerous and blasphemous teaching that Jesus is the Messiah and this teaching uh, needs to be eliminated. And so the up-and-coming Saul approaches the chief priests in order to get permission from them to extend his inquisition to the synagogues of Damascus. And that is where our reading picks up today. Near the end of his week-long journey to Damascus, Saul is suddenly knocked to the ground by a flash of light, and he hears the risen Lord uh, speaking to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And after commanding him to go into the city, the light fades and Saul is no longer able to see. And the men who have come with him to assist in the arrest of those believers in Jesus, they witness Saul's reaction and they hear the sound, but they cannot understand the content of of Saul's vision. So when their leader stands up suddenly blind, they lead him by the hand into the city of Damascus. And there he waits, neither eating nor drinking. Now, if this is where the story ended with Saul, the persecutor of the church, struck blind and humiliated, stewing on the error of his ways, well, there would be a sense of justice to this text. After all, this wouldn't be the first time in Acts when God intervenes for those who are uh, wronging the church. And Saul is responsible for a great many evils committed against the believers of Jesus. Not only was he among those responsible for the stoning of Stephen, But we can imagine how many families he has ripped apart, how many people are languishing in prison, how many children have been orphaned or made functional orphans because of this inquisition of his. I mean, surely if anyone deserves divine punishment, it is Saul. But of course, the story doesn't end there. For after three days, God sends a disciple named Ananias to go and restore to Saul his sight. And when he has prayed with Saul, Saul's vision is restored and he stands up and he is baptized. And that's it. Saul goes in the space of three days from being a vehement and dangerous persecutor of the church to being Saul, the chosen instrument of God. I mean, it doesn't really seem fair. Saul doesn't make a dramatic confession. He doesn't promise to repay the victims of his inquisition. He doesn't even try to advocate for those who may still be imprisoned. In fact, what is striking about this story is that Saul doesn't seem to do anything at all. Uh, One moment he is approaching Damascus, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And the next he's on the ground. And aside from asking, who are you, Lord? He says absolutely nothing for the remainder of our reading. As Saul will write later, this revelation of Jesus Christ to him was an act of God's grace, God's apocalyptic grace, as I'm calling it. 
coming to him undeserved and unasked for. I use that word apocalyptic intentionally because this event is truly a world-ending revelation for Saul. He himself will write later in Romans 6, likely with his own baptism in mind, we have been buried with Christ by baptism into death so that we, may be, uh, so that we might walk in newness of life. We commonly call this story the conversion of Saul. In fact, the front of our bulletin says right there, Paul's conversion. But conversion is really too weak of a word to describe what's happening here. Because this isn't just conversion in the way that we usually think of it. This is not a man discarding one set of religious beliefs in order to take up another one. This is not Saul ceasing to be a Jew in order to become a Christian. In fact, Christian is not even a term that has been invented yet at this point. Rather, Saul, the old sinner who found the source of life in his success as a Jew and as a Pharisee, that Saul is put to death. And Saul, the new believer who finds the source of his life in Jesus Christ, crucified and raised, that Saul is raised to new life. He's still a Jew and a Pharisee, but now his heart trusts in Christ's promise to him, rather than in his ability to fulfill the law. And all this is not because of his worthiness or his will, but simply because Jesus Christ broke into Saul's world and turned it upside down so that nothing stayed the same. Saul's story isn't unique, by the way. His story and his legacy may be a bit more impressive than most, but what happens when Jesus Christ breaks into your world, or my world, is no less apocalyptic. When Jesus Christ breaks into your heart like a thief in the night, he doesn't leave things as they are. He puts the old to death and raises the new to life, and by this, everything is changed. Rather than living in a world of anxiety and competition and strife, the world becomes gift and freedom and life, even in the midst of sin and evil. Because our lives, our true lives, no longer depend on our success, but on Jesus Christ's victory. No, conversion isn't strong enough. What we are dealing with is death and resurrection. Or in Saul's own words, new creation. I may have mentioned this before, but my very favorite fictional portrayal of Jesus is in uh, the character of Aslan the Lion in the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Uh, if you haven't read them, I highly recommend them. Uh, and while there's many examples I could choose from from these stories, I want to share just one which I think illustrates for me what this apocalyptic, inbreaking grace looks like. It's found near the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is the first book written uh, in the series. And uh, if you recall, or maybe if you haven't read the story, the magical land of Narnia, where the story takes place, it's been subjugated by an evil queen, the White Witch. And she has blanketed the land in an eternal winter. Always winter, never Christmas is the uh, famous line from it. And, and she has the power to turn the inhabitants of this land into stone. Uh, changing them into statues. And in fact, in the courtyard of her castle, there is this macabre display of those that she has punished. All sorts of creatures, magical creatures, turned into stone, their faces forever frozen in fear as they realized what their fate would be. 
And then finally, near the end of this story, after Aslan the lion has used his own death to overcome the witch's curse, and during the preparation for the final battle with the witch and her army, Aslan breaks into the witch's courtyard. And he begins to go from statue to statue, and he breathes on each statue as he goes by them. And as he breathes on them, their stony features begin to soften, and the color begins to return to their faces, and they begin slowly to emerge from their bondage. And having been awakened from the stony death which had been their existence for years, and in some cases centuries, they begin to laugh and to talk and to dance, alive in a way that they had not been moments before. That is apocalyptic grace. Grace which breaks into a place it is not welcome, which brings freedom and release and true life. That is what Jesus Christ is doing and has done and will continue to do for you. He is breathing on you his spirit opening your eyes, giving you new life, just as he did with Saul and Ananias and countless others all the way up through today. And as you view the world with the vision of faith, the scales having fallen from your eyes, you will see, as Saul did, that in his words, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See everything has become new. Amen.